2: Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone.
3: Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Jude Bijou. She's author of Attitude Reconstruction, a Blueprint for Building a Better Life. Jude is a psychotherapist, professional educator, and consultant. Her theory of attitude reconstruction evolved over the course of more than 30 years as a licensed marriage and family therapist. And it is the subject of her book, Attitude Reconstruction, A Blueprint for Building a Better Life. And you can learn more about the book and you can learn more about Jude if you go to her website, which is attitudereconstruction.com. Welcome to the show, Jude. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you. It's
4: very nice to be here, Catherine.
3: Well, you've been a marriage and family therapist, I'm assuming, for over 30 years, so you've had a lot of experience. Uh, and I assume this is the premise, obviously, for writing your book. So, what attitude reconstruction, a blueprint for building a better life, what is it? What do you focus on in the book? Um, most of us grow up with certain fears we're anxious, we're fretful, Uh, it pervades our attitude and the way we behave with our friends and family and even in our work situation. So this blueprint for helping us to lead a better life, I assume, um, responds to these, these kind of overall overriding fears that many of us have.
4: That's right. What I realized was that all of our bad attitudes, all of our problems are really rooted in unexpressed emotions. That's unexpressed sadness, anger, and fear. There's just three of them, and each of them has a different sensation in our body and if we'll move out that sadness allow ourselves to cry or if we're um, angry allow ourselves to stomp or if we're scared allow ourselves to shiver and shake a little bit we move that energy and then we make room for three other emotions joy love and peace okay well, when
3: you, de- when you describe it, it sounds really simple. It sounds easy. But for most of us, or many of us, we've been struggling with this all our lives. The, you know, sometimes it's worse, depending on what our, the stresses are in our life. So can we get, be really specific about how does this operate? You're saying that we repress our anger, our sadness, our fear. It becomes pervasive, and it controls how we respond to each other and to the outside world. But once we are able to acknowledge it, Then we have joy, love, and peace. How do we do that?
4: Okay. Well, we started very young. When we were young infants, when we were children, we naturally expressed our emotions. uh, We were denied the cookie, and we had a temper tantrum, or we got hurt, we fell down, we naturally cried. And what happened? We started to get messages when we were very, very young about it wasn't okay. it's It's too much action, and we've got to move the family in a certain direction. So we heard, girls aren't pretty when they're angry. Don't be a scaredy cat, or don't cry, or I'll give you something to cry about. We got so many messages so that what happened was we learned it's not okay to express those emotions physically because that's what children do, and then they get over it. They bounce right back to their happy, full self. But we learned, okay, that's not okay, mommy and daddy or the other, whatever our family system is, that doesn't do anything to help us get to our needs. We're not going to get a lot of love coming at us if we're all the time having temper tantrums. Well, we're
3: starting with, I guess, as I hear you, we're starting with anger. We're starting with the two-and-a-half-year-old because most of us can relate to that, not necessarily having been two-and-a-half, but having contact with two-and-a-half-year-olds, and that's exactly what happens. If you thwart them or don't allow them to do something, they get enraged sometimes. But how do we allow them to be angry, given your construct, but at the same time make it healthy and not stuffing it You know, so they don't have to stuff that emotion, I guess is what you're saying, and never express or be told that anger isn't good and don't express it. There must be a balance.
4: Yes, absolutely. But what we need to do is to understand that it's normal and natural to have these emotions come up and that we need a safe place. So it means take the child to the back room or to the garage or out to the car and give them the space to let that energy out. Because if we don't, that's when we start, you know, blaming people and saying mean things and doing things. But if we just go, go for it. I see you. You're really upset. You can't have that new toy. And I'll just allow them there. I'm not judging them. I'm not telling them to hurry up and be finished. I'm just saying, okay. I want my child to be healthy. I want to take them away to some place where they can express that. Because if we are, as, as us, we can do as adults as well, this is what we need to do is the same thing that little children do, and that is we're not doing it, we're not yelling at other people and calling people names. That doesn't make us feel any less angry. Let's take it back to the two year
3: old because that's what we've learned from, I think, isn't it? Or that's inherently who we are, that two year old, or we regress to it uh, or to those feelings. But let's take it in a practical sense. And you say, okay, you have a two and a half year old who's having a temper tantrum. Well, my experience is I've, my two and a half year old has a temper tantrum on an airplane or in a restaurant or in a place that it's not really that easy to take them away and talk to them and, uh, and, and be more understanding about what they're responding to. So, what do you? you do
4: well it does depend because um, the context but if you are it might mean abandoning the grocery cart and taking the child out to the car and say I see you're angry go for it and let them do that let them move that out you also what I'll use with uh, clients is I'll have a stack of old telephone books and a flexible plastic hose and I'll say, "Go for it," and I hit those phone books, and what happens is page starts flying, it's loud, it's so satisfying to get that energy out of our body in a safe place, because I'm not going and yelling and cursing. That's only going to make me feel more angry. And so it's the same with a little child. It's like, take them to that safe place. In an airplane, it's, it's tough. But you can just sort of say, hey, you know, you take some little pillow. with. Hey, scream into this pillow because there's no words there. It's just sounds. It's just movements. Oh, oh, oh. But if we can give voice to it rather than what we've been learned to do, stuff it down, stuff yeah. it down, stuff it down. We need an down. outlet for our
3: anger, whether we're we two and it. a half or whether we're 42 and a half. And, exactly. Yeah, and we don't need to be told, don't be angry, because that's not good for you.
4: And no, be a- because it's, legit- it's legitimate. We, we, naturally, we, we naturally, when we experience what we perceive as a violation or an injustice, it's natural to feel anger. We just have to do something and own it and go, okay, I'm feeling angry before I start reading somebody the riot act. I need to take care of my own energy, my own emotion, so that then when I speak up, I can do it from a clear space, not say those things that are so hurtful and cause so much more damage.
3: We've been talking about anger, and if we, have we covered it enough so that we could move on and talk about sadness? Um, because that's the other Emotion that we are all often told to just stop it. You know, it doesn't. Nobody wants. You shouldn't feel sad. You know, and we're always trying to make people feel better. And uh, you can, I can give countless examples of that. But I want you to do that. Like, what do we do? Why do we do it? Actually, our culture, I think, is really um, nurtures that kind of behavior. We shouldn't, Americans, we shouldn't feel sad about
4: anything. Exactly. But what happens, Because for me, what happens, the more sadness we suppress, the less joy we feel. Okay, give us because, an example. Okay, so when I get, see, um, sadness is the natural physiology. It's a natural body response when we have hurts or losses. So say we lose our toy, say we lose a loved one. Say um, we get hurt, whether it's an emotional hurt, somebody calls us names, or whether it, you know, or we feel betrayed, so on. We can feel all of those feelings inside, but we've gotten those messages. It's not okay to cry, rather than to just go. It is okay to cry. It's human to cry. I'll feel better if I just cry. And again, we go and take ourselves someplace safe, whether it's into the bathroom or whether the bedroom or wherever, and just give ourselves permission to cry. We need to offset all of those messages that say, no, 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 keep it together, keep it together, especially like in the business world, keep it together. We're, I'm not saying you, can, you need to, like, allow yourself to cry in the middle of a business meeting. That's not going to work. But when you're feeling sad, it's like I feel this heaviness. Do I want to feel that heaviness for the next day or week or whatever? Or do I want to honor it? And when I honor it, it's like, I just need to make time. Maybe I go and see a sad movie or listen to some music or something to, or think about a, a lost one that is, has, has died, uh, has died. and it, we just need to maybe hold ourselves and just rock back and forth and just go, it's okay to cry. It's okay. And, you know, I think even beyond
3: crying, when you talk about honoring the sadness, I know, unfortunately, I have... Friends, family uh, who uh, as a, you know get a diagnosis who perhaps a very serious diagnosis i 've had a f- several friends diagnosed with breast cancer I think that 's a good example, and immediately, people expect or you 're expected after the diagnosis of breast cancer to say, this is the best thing that ever happened to me because oh. i 've been able to do this, this, and this without acknowledging maybe this is the worst thing right now that 's ever happened to me. And be able to, as you say, honor that sadness. I feel sad about it. I feel bad about it for lots of reasons. And to be able to discuss it with those who you trust and love. We try to eradicate. We don't let people, you know, as a social worker in dealing with patients who have had diagnoses like that, um, it's difficult for social workers to deal with families and say, you know, it's okay to talk about it. the, The sad part about it, the difficult part about it, don't try to make it. Fun and, 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 and just and or fun maybe isn't the right word, but try to
4: make yeah. it something that it's not. Exactly. We need to honor what our body is naturally feeling, because again, it's a hurt, it's a loss, and that's just the body's natural response. What happens and when we don't deal with the sadness, if we don't allow ourselves to cry, is we start to turn it against ourselves, and that is we start to think, I'm worthless, I'm unlovable, I'm not okay. We can start to feel depressed, and that is because we haven't let that energy out. So it's again, it's the same. It's with all of the emotions. I need to cry, but while I'm crying, I'm not going to go, oh, and I'll never find a partner, and oh, I always make mistakes. You'll cry again forever. It's like, I just feel sad. It's okay. I just got a diagnosis. It's okay. I feel sad, and it's okay. It's such a relief.
3: Do you think this is, and I mentioned it earlier when we began talking. Is it a cultural thing? Do you think it's specifically um, typical of uh, here in the United States um, that we tend to do this? We tend to stifle our anger, our sadness, and our fear more than other cultures? And if that's the case, are there other cultures where they don't do that and we see the positive
4: results? Yeah, there's there, uh, each culture is slightly different, as each family is different. One family can say, oh, it was okay to cry in my family, and I go, oh, hallelujah, it was all right. And those people really experience a lot of that joy because they haven't held in all of that sadness. But the next family, it's like, oh, no, and I'm not going to get angry. My father got angry, and there's no way I'm going to get angry. So we got those, we got really strong messages, you know, keep everything running, put on those appearances that everything's okay. So, but it's not just us, but I think we got it big time, especially if you talk with people from other countries that come and visit, there. that's something that they observe. But each country really has their own norms about that. So that in Italy, it might be alright to, you know, yell and scream, and then they move through that anger.
3: Well, well I, what you're saying is each family is a different culture. So, just within the con, you know in the context of the American culture, we have so many different kinds of families where it may or may not be allowable to express these feelings of and keep repeating them: anger, sadness, fear.
4: Um, what I think it is yet? universal, I think it I think you the, the same thing that 's what attitude reconstruction, regardless of whether you live in Russia or you live in South America, no matter where you live, you have gotten some messages about emotions because you know it was, goes way back to uh survival you can 't be crying if some, if somebody's going to know where you 're hiding out and your your whole tribe is going to get um, obliterated or eaten or whatever. We got those messages, but we've just taken it over the decades and years and centuries. And really that Protestant ethic of, you know, you have to hold it all in and pretend everything's okay. So every culture really got messages. We, we, there's, there's rarely a culture where everybody is allowed to just express their, their emotions. But some, it's a little bit okay to be scared. Others, it's a little okay to, be, to, to do some crime. But it's individual.
3: Dude, what about uh, gender? Are there gender differences... Because, you know, some of this, as you say, has evolved. You know, if uh, the caveman has to be out there fighting and killing and doing what he needs to do, he can't sit and cry over, uh, in, in the, in the cave. Uh, but, so do you think we're hardwired to respond differently, males and females, that maybe it's more okay for women to be sad or fearful? Maybe not as okay to be angry. Men can be more angry and more aggressive. Have you found differences, say, in your, in, in your practice?
4: Absolutely. Well, men got a lot of messages that it wasn't okay to be scared. Can't show the fear. That's that's just not okay. And it's not okay to be sadness, to, to feel to feel the sadness. So we got those messages. And with the anger, it's not like, okay, go and have a temper tantrum. No, it's go and have sports and hit other people or, you know, Aggressive and so on, but so I think guys definitely, and that in my practice, it's always been like it's just been harder for guys to give themselves permission to let go and cry, let go and you know get that anger out of their body. So, but we all have, we all have gotten different messages. Well, all right, so we, we if we're transforming
3: ourselves and we've gone from feeling angry, sadness, and fear, but not feeling it, allowing ourselves to feel it, and that takes time. But when that begins to happen, then you say we can experience joy, love, and peace. How do we make that transition?
4: Well, but it's just, you know, again, it's what's just so natural when we deal with, say, the anger, and we really pound the heck out of something, you know, constructively, and we just make those sounds, and just, you know, we can, like, beat on our bed, pull back the covers, and beat on that mattress. It feels so embarrassing at first and so silly, and then after you do it for a few seconds, it's like, oh, this feels really, really good, and to allow yourself to just Pound as much as you can, as long as you can, and then catch your breath and do it again and do it some more. In five minutes, that energy is just gone out of our body. And what is naturally replaced it with is that a different inner feeling, that anger is not covering up that love that we actually feel. So it just happens spontaneously when we uh, move that energy out. Now, we can use, and we'll talk about, what we can use our thinking to help us along the way. But it's just a natural thing. If we deal with the fear, if we shake and shiver and allow that energy to move out of the body, what happens is that we feel more peaceful. That's just the way that it is. I'm no longer tight. I'm shaking and shivering that energy out. And peace is restored. Now I can take action. Now I can figure out what I need to do.
3: I'm picturing that two-and-a-half-year-old who's having a temper tantrum. And when you've seen them have the tent- temper tantrum and allow them to do it, You, and they be, you watch them, they are spent and relax and fall asleep usually after that. I mean, that's sort of the same thing you're describing except for an adult. But once you do that as an individual, then how can you incorporate that into your relationship, say with a partner or with your child, uh, so that, yes, maybe you, you're able to just, you know, punch the pillow or just let that rage out. But then does talking about it with, But your spouse or your partner or children, is that helpful too, talking about the anger, the
4: sadness and or the fear? Absolutely, because then you're owning it. Like with anger, we have a tendency to, well, it's not even a tendency, what, what we do is it's your fault. You did this, and that's why I'm angry. It's you, 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 We finger pointing out at other people. And if we go, no, it's me, I'm the one that's feeling angry, nobody else is feeling angry. If I deal with that anger, if I allow myself to say, I'll be back in 15 minutes, and go and find that safe place around the back of the house or the garage or whatever, and move that energy out. so much clarity comes. That's what's so fabulous. Like when you see that little child after they've been spent, maybe they fall asleep or whatever, they wake up or they, Mommy, I want a hug. And it's just, you know, like they're back. They're loving. They're not holding on to all of that. What happens with us is we hold on to those those emotions and that anger, and now I'm not going to trust you anymore, and now you did me wrong, and all that kind of thing. But we need to talk about it but from that place of, I've dealt with the emotion, and now I didn't like what happened last night. You know, I thought we were planning to do this, and all of a sudden we were at this party, and you were all talking to all your friends, and there I was sitting in the corner alone. I want to talk about that so it's different next time. So it allows you, once you get that out, then
3: you are sort of clear to be able to do this, to have the discussion that you need to have. If you go to your website, too, and, and I want to mention the website again, com, because you have some questions on there. Um, and I think these are pretty are very helpful. Which, uh, what is between you and the joy, love, and peace you desire? And so the that uh you can one can recognize the symptoms because there are symptoms there that you, you and symptoms that are um well, you ask the question, do you feel worried, anxious, stressed, or overwhelmed I mean think about it, and if you do then perhaps you it's important for you first of all to read the book but <laughs> to do some attitude reconstruction and so well, and
4: Yes, Yes, and those things that you're talking about, worry to overwhelm, all of those kind of words that agitated and and losing perspective are all related to the emotion of fear. And if we start saying, I know it's going to seem silly, but I'm going to start shaking instead of tensing up, you know, and holding it all in and stop breathing, I'm going to allow myself to just get up and make some sound, you know, and, and just move that energy because they're just energy, these emotions. And if I'm just going to honor those emotions, then I'm going to be in a better place to go, all right, I've dealt with the fear, what next? But you'll find I'm not worrying so much. Okay, I'll handle it. Let me figure out what needs to be done. So that's what that's what happens. And, and like you say on the website, there's a quiz a free quiz where people can take that really shows the core attitudes that we've all taken on instead of dealing with those emotions and you rate each of those and then it will give you some practical suggestions about how you can deal with the attitudes that you've taken on because you haven't dealt with your emotions so whatever whether i'm feeling anxious or i'm feeling judgmental or i'm feeling really bad about myself and i have low self there's really practical things we can do besides honoring our emotions and expressing our emotions to move out of those bad attitudes so we can feel the opposite, so we can feel more joy, love, and peace.
3: And, Jude, you're saying we can do this on our own, obviously, with the help of, say, reading your book, going to the website, but we don't necessarily have to be in therapy or in counseling to achieve the joy, love, and peace.
4: Absolutely, absolutely, that it is, that, and that's what happened with me. Like I, I as a child, I was not happy, and I knew that there had to be some order to what was going on, and so really that's what I've devoted my life and my career to is to figure out how we're wired. And when I, because the, the title of the book is A Blueprint for Building a Better Life, you know, Attitude Reconstruction. So there's a blueprint right in the book, and it's also available on the website, that, that, oh, here's where I am. We're all like this. It's not just people who live in Oklahoma or California or Calgary. All over the world, this is what we do when we don't deal with these emotions. And this you know, is how we feel. These are
3: emotions. We have to say goodbye. So I do want to mention the book again and the website for listeners to go to, AttitudeReconstruction.com. And the title of the book is Attitude Reconstruction, A Blueprint uh, for Building a Better Life. Jude Bijou. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning.
4: Thank you. It's my pleasure.
3: Yeah, it was great to have you. We're going to take a short break right now, but we'll be back in a minute. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio.
1: The bottom line in business talk. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. V.A. Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all
5: the time. Looking for the best show about horse racing and handicapping? Want to play the ponies?
0: Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. News,
5: opinions, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com.
2: You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788.
3: Welcome back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, Joining me this morning is Holly Brown. Uh, She's a novelist, and her new novel is Don't Try to Find Me. Holly Brown lives with her husband and toddler daughter in the San Francisco Bay Area, where she's been practicing marriage and family therapy. And her blog, Bonding Time, is featured on psychcentral.com. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Holly. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So we're here to discuss your novel, it's a, it's a novel, but I guess in some ways it reflects your own experiences as a mother and a therapist, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, so um, let's begin. Uh, don't Try to Find Me. Um, how did you come up, first of all, with the premise of the book and, and try and relate that to who you are as a mother and a therapist?
4: Mm-hmm.
6: Yes. Um, in terms of the the premise, I was actually driving to work one day and um, I happened to catch a man named Tony Loftus who was being interviewed on on NPR. And um, he had a, a PR background himself, and and his daughter had run away, and um, and he launched a social media campaign um, that helped bring her home. And then he started a non nonprofit to help other parents do the same, and it's called uh, FindYourMissingChild.org. And um, and so that sort of spoke to me as, as, a, as a therapist, but then he was talking about um, how if you're a parent and you're thinking of uh, launching a social media campaign that you need to think about whether you have any skeletons in your closet because all that media exposure and all that scrutiny can um, can like basically expose all of your secrets and that and um, you need to kind of think about what that would mean for you as a family so um, that kind of intrigued me as a novelist so um, then I was thinking about what kind of characters and what kind of secrets and, and that's where I think that my therapist background kind of comes into play because I was thinking a lot about kind of the emotional disconnection that I observe between uh, parents and children and how that would also play into, um, into why
3: someone would run away So Don't Try to Find Me so that opens with a mother discovering that her 14 year old daughter has run away and as you're discussing a scenario that um, many readers, I think most readers, would describe as their parent, as their parent's worst nightmare. Mm-hmm. So um, that's a tough topic. That's, uh, so let's talk about... Okay, that was the inspiration for your book. Yes. Um, all right. Um, what was your writing process? I mean, how did you... You know, how did you come up with your characters and and the characters' goals and, and, um, you know, what prompted you to create each character? How did you do that? Yes.
6: um, Well, I guess I was thinking a lot about um, what kind of... person I wanted um Marley and um uh, Marley to be and what kind of person I wanted Rachel to be and the ways I wanted them to be Marley similar is the as the daughter mother and, and Rachel's
3: the mother. Yes, yes.
6: So Marley's the fourteen year old daughter. And um, and I, I wanted them to be similar in ways that they don't sort of recognize yet and that over the course of the novel that um, that as they kind of both have to grow and get stronger as people, that in a way they're sort of growing together. Um and so there's, that's kind of the arc of the novel. So I was thinking a lot about um, what I just basically what kind of people they would be and what kind of secrets they'd have. And and um, and then I think that as I did subsequent drafts, so there were a number of drafts before it was a finished product, um, both before the novel sold and after the novel sold, and I had an editor. So um, I think that they kept becoming kept kind of getting more layered and textured. So it was kind of things just kept building on top of one another. Um, and uh, and so they they kind. I mean, I think they. Came to me, like their voices both came to me pretty strongly when I first started writing. But then, like, all those nuances and layers I think kind of emerge over the draft.
3: Can we talk more about actually the novel? I don't want to give it away. It's all, you know, when we're, when I'm always interviewing somebody who's written a novel, it's sort of like we want to talk about it, but at the same time, we want people to go out and get it and read it and and experience it themselves. So we sort of want to talk about it, but not give away the whole uh, picture, you know, give away the whole story. So, right. What? So let's do that. Let's not, you know, let's uh, not talk about the ending, perhaps. But uh, what are some of this other, the other the themes in the book? Uh, let's take those because obviously those are important. You talk about manipulation is a big theme in the novel. How does that mm-hmm. fit in?
6: Mm-hmm. Yes, um, I think, yeah, and I'm trying to think of how not to sort of reveal whose manipulations and in, um, yeah. to what degree, because um, I think a lot of that emerges over the over the course of the book in terms of uh, who you initially kind of think of it as um, as being more manipulative. It, it kind of morphs into something else, and then other people come to come to the forefront as, as having that. But I guess I think of manipulation in relationships as like, to a certain extent, I think all relationships have some degree of manipulation, because um, there's a, a, a sort of mental health health definition that you you probably know, um, you know, given your background, but that I really like was just saying saying that um, manipulative behavior is about a person who doesn't know how to get their needs met any other way. And I think of that as a somewhat compassionate way to think of it, and also a realistic way to think of it, because I do think it comes into play in our relationships when we're trying to coerce a certain outcome, or, where you know, we want something to happen, and we don't know how to, to make it happen directly. So I think that there's a degree of manipulation in all of our relationships, and, and that's certainly true of my characters, but then there there's some relationships where it takes a much more extreme and sort of toxic form, and then people have to um, kind of bring that more into their conscious awareness, and then, and then make changes, because sometimes the people who manipulating us are the ones who ostensibly are trying to, to help us.
3: Yeah. Don't Try to Find Me, isn't the, the title sort of involves that, doesn't it? Or it kind of reflects on, on what you're saying, Don't Try to Find Me. She runs away, um, and they do try to find her. Uh, right, and yeah. some part of
6: her must know they're going to try to find her. That they're not going to say, "Oh, she said she's going to be okay." Like you know, <laughs> I think she's got this one. I, I think she knows on some level, yes, that, that they're going to have to try to find her. You know, um, but maybe it also reflects, you know, and you, you learn this throughout the book. Maybe it also reflects that she's she's not so secure in knowing um, how her parents feel about her for various reasons. You know, that maybe it suggests suggests a certain insecurity in that emotional bond and um, attachment theory and um, emotional bonds are. That, that's something that's very important in my work as a therapist, and I think it's, it's also something that informs the, the novel. So it's something that I, I don't talk about it directly at all in the novel, but it's it's something that was it, sort of meaningful to me in the way I just think of all relationships, and particularly parent-child relationships.
3: Yeah, well, I think attachment uh, yeah, theory, I think it's important. Let's talk about that. What is attachment theory? Because there are people who are listening in the audience, lay people who have no idea what, what that is, and it, it does really, um, I, I think it is something that is, obviously covered in the book, it is part of the theme of the book. So what is it? Mm
4: -hmm.
6: Yeah, so attachment theory is something that there's a lot of good research to to back to back it up, um, in terms of the idea that the the relationships that we form, um, you know, with our parents, um, with our caregivers when we're when we're really little, that they sort of serve as a template for our later relationships. So that um, essentially, if we had a really secure emotional bond, meaning like when you cried, you could reliably know that someone would come and take care of you, you know, someone would meet your basic needs. Like if you if you feel that way, then you're more likely to develop secure relationships later because you sort of believe in people, you know, that um, and and if you have insecure your bonds with your parents, and those can look like a lot of different things. You know, sometimes it's like there can be just uh, sometimes it's not you know a parent's fault at all. It can be there's a disruption in the in the caregiving relationship because maybe the child's very sick and has to be in the hospital, and the parent can't hold them. You know, those those really sad situations like with premature babies, and they have to you know and they can only touch them you know with gloves, and they you know those sorts of things. So um, there can be all sorts of different kinds of ruptures. Um, but but basically the idea is that it um, it it affects how we have relationships in the future. It's not um, it doesn't deter Determine, I think the outcome of all of our relationships not like for sure if you had a bad relationship with your mom for sure you're going to have a terrible marriage you know um, it's not that way at all but I, I, I think of it as a good way of thinking about um, about relationships like that often when couples come to see me that I get a, what what they what we call an attachment history which is to find out more about their primary relationships when they were kids and then often you do see certain dynamics play out in their spousal relationships that um, that kind of can mirror that in a way where they're constantly seeking Love or they're you know and they never really feel connected or reassured or because they had because they weren't you know they their, their needs weren't met as as a child so um, so that that's attachment theory and that um, definitely plays into the, the novel because I thought about the kind of relationships everybody had with their parents you know Rachel had with her parents as well and uh, how that influences how she
3: parents Marley and and another and just getting on to the next um, theme one of the kids and I guess I wouldn't have thought of this necessarily the kids. Um, don't necessarily have to run away for there to be troubling disconnection with the family. And it's important, really, um, to understand the warning signs, I guess, the behavioral problems uh, that, that might exist, which would suggest problems between parents and children so they don't get to the point where they actually do run away. To be able to recognize things like, you know, drug use, isolation, but let's, let's discuss some of those things. because. Um, is, and then this is the second part of the question, and I don't know if this was part of the research for your novel, but is it more prevalent now that kids are running away, that teenagers are running away? What are the statistics? Do we have any
6: um, that's a really good question. I'll be honest, I don't know um, if it's if it's something that's on the on the rise or not. Um, I know, um, you know, I, I did some research around just, you know, learning about law enforcement and how much, you know, how many of their resources they put towards finding runaways and about what percentage tend to come home at what point, like 50% in the first week and, you know, 75 over the course of the next couple weeks. And so I knew some things like that. But in terms of whether it's on the rise, I, I don't actually know that. Um, I do think that um, there's... That I was sort of choosing as a novelist um, to explore a theme that that I'm very interested in, which is that emotional disconnection. And I happened to use the running away to to do it. Like, that's kind of um, the. the uh, the, the scenario in this particular book, but but it's true. It could have been, um, you know, losing your kids to drug addiction or, or, you know, there's more defiance or there's, you know, just different things that are going on. And, and um, so I think, um, I, I guess I, how I think of the, the disconnection is that some of it is to be expected because there's that developmental process where, like, adolescents are supposed to kind of pull away and it's a confusing time for them because they both really want to feel safe and they also want to be independent. And so I think behaviorally that can look really confused, you know, to yeah. parents. And parents don't know what to make of that. And that's why they're like, my kid's like all over the map. And it's because they're kind of working, at, working that out, you know. So some of that's normal. And then I think that, but what I think is not is that there's like a complete cutoff between parents and their children where they really don't, they really don't talk. They really just, there's just no connection. That's, that's not normal, I think. Um, and, and figuring out what to do about that if it, it's that's happening in your family it's it's you know it's definitely a, a you know a challenge
3: for parents yeah a challenge for parents a challenge for the kids it's a challenge for the whole family as you say mm-hmm. because there is that balance for what's normal and what's not normal and uh, mm-hmm. separation is normal but how separate is normal. Right. (laughs) Does one need to separate at that age? absolutely right. Uh, And and going on, you you talk about in the book, I mean, social media, that comes into play both in, in, I guess, in the context of the novel. Um, The question is asked if uh, if the parents, if Rachel and her husband had monitored uh, their daughter Marley's uh, social media more closely, perhaps she wouldn't have run away. I know this is a huge question for parents of teenagers. How much should they be monitoring their children's social media? What should they do? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
6: Yeah, and I I guess I think that um the parents need to if they're going to be monitoring their their kids social media and I would sort of rec- recommend that they do, that they think a lot about um the way in which they they monitor to the the social media, meaning that um it's about what you do with the information, it's how you follow up with your child, it's if you can use that knowledge as a bridge to reconnect with your child. You know, I think that um And and to be sort of very transparent with your kids about it, to say, this is why I'm monitoring. This is what specifically I'm worried about. It might be about their specific teenager. It might be just about the world at large, you know. And if you have a teenager who seems like they'd be especially vulnerable to online predators, for example, that you would talk honestly about why you think that's the case and then allow your teenager to disagree and to take that seriously. So I see it as it's all, um, the monitoring is a jumping off point for having conversations with your teenager because simply like um, cutting off certain content without discussion, I think doesn't really do good things for the relationship, and I also think that teenagers are just likely to go underground, meaning they're just going to find ways to get around the parent because the parent feels like an enemy rather than an ally, so... I think a lot of it is just the way you do it, because I think sometimes parents are really uncomfortable having conversations with their teenagers about this kind of thing.
3: I and two so things they... that, you know, because I, I want to respond to uh-huh. two things you said. I think we're asking a lot of parents. I think it's particularly mm-hmm. difficult. You're asking them to be communicators when some parents just aren't mm-hmm. communicators necessarily. And now the mm-hmm. communication process with social media and social monitoring has become really complex and so and and very difficult for some parents. You know, so. We've really added another layer to the parenting of teenagers, middle school kids, and high school kids. I'm not sure there's an answer for that, but um, I think that's, that that can be very that's very difficult in certain families, and um, it doesn't necessarily have to be a dysfunctional family, does it? <laughs>
6: No, no. I, I think in a lot of ways, it's you know what you're looking for are um, generally you know are changes in your in your teenager. So that like if for example, you if you had a teenager who um, was you know never talked to you much, or if you had family where people just don't tend to you know be very um, verbally expressive, you know then um, the fact that your teenager isn't sort of talking a lot, it's it's not a change. So it might not really be a problem in your family. I I think a lot of it is just what you're trying to be alert for are are, are, are the changes as they happen so that you can follow up, and I, I think that's the that's the place where Rachel feels um, a lot of guilt, because she feels like she sort of fell down on the job when it came to Marley, because if she had been monitoring Marley's social media, maybe she just would have seen earlier that it's not that Marley was just quiet, it's that Marley was really unhappy, and that there were distinct changes in the way she was relating to her friends and relating to the world, and that, um, that Rachel didn't really see that happening, and the social media monitoring would have been one way to, to see that happening, but it's not the only way to see it, because I, I know what you're saying is that, like, do parents need one more thing to add to their to-do list, which is, that you know, before you go to bed, make sure you look at your kids, you know, Instagram and Facebook, and you know, because you surely don't have enough to do. get You know, get on that, too. So, um, So, yeah, it's just one way to, I think, monitor your kids, you know, and it's not a way that you have to feel like you have to do it, like, all the time. You know, I think it's just a way that you can kind of see if there's, like, trouble brewing and then be able to have discussions with them so that you can just give you more information to follow up about.
3: Yeah. It's another tool in the parental toolbox, I guess you yes. would say. Exactly. Um, visibility and invisibility. That's another theme, another really important theme in the book. Let's talk about that because you say that Marley, the daughter who runs mm-hmm. away, it often feels overlooked and invisible. And perhaps one of the, is one of that is one of the reasons that prompted her leaving.
4: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
6: Yeah, there and there there's a you know kind of a number of of reasons um why she leaves and they kind of emerge through throughout the course of the book and that's where some of the suspense is, is just so there's the suspense of like what's happening to her now where is she now and what's going on and then there's also the just the questions of like how did she get there how did the disconnect happen with her family how did you know her disconnection happen with like all fr- all of her friends Just kind of how did she get there um emotionally and um but I think that um how I kind of see it in terms of like the larger like, social media world and all the likability on Facebook and Instagram and all that. And I just, I I was just sort of thinking about how it's kind of harder for teens today because there's this burden of visibility that I know I didn't feel, you know, because pre-social media, I don't, we didn't think of that, you know. Um, but now it's like, it's weird if a teenager doesn't have a social media presence. And, um, and if you do have a social media presence, then it's like you have this situation where you can see how many likes you got for a picture or a tweet yeah. or, you know, you can kind of, so there's this like weird public shame factor. And yeah. also it's, it's like you get all this instant feedback about whether you're okay or not because if nobody liked that, then you feel like it's not okay for me to think this or wear this or be like this, you know, and if I got likes, then maybe I should do more of that. Then, you know, so I feel like it can kind of almost like distort your personality in a, in a strange way, you know, that that worries me for, for kids is that they can be, they're just getting so much feedback. <laughs> all the time that I, I realized, like, in terms of my development as a teenager, I'm like, I'm glad I didn't constantly know what everyone liked and didn't like about me. Like, that would have been really... I don't know. I don't know how that would have affected me. And, well, I
3: I think it have, must have and the way you're saying it, I hadn't actually thought about it that way, but uh, you're so right, because you're constantly today with social media and Instagram and Twitter and Facebook constantly exposed and it's ongoing it's always there. I mean before that and perhaps you went to a dance and your your hair looked terrible and you wore the wrong makeup and the wrong dress but that was an isolated incident. It didn't stay it wasn't first of all it didn't go out to only the people at the dance saw you and and <laughs> and it wasn't it wasn't out there in uh uh you know uh, on all these these virtual feeds. So I, the impact of that I guess we won't know for you know for a while, I guess, until these kids actually go through the teenage years and are are young adults
6: right and, and when I think of does it distort their their personality development or something like that I guess it's it's um, it'll be hard to tell because they'll have just grown up like in that world so it you know what I mean so it's kind of just the environment they're used to so maybe it only seems really um, alarming to me because I didn't have it you know so I'm like oh if I was suddenly thrown in there but maybe they're the kids are like they're getting indoctrinated in that from when they're so little the idea that you can just you know picture, people can take pictures of you at any time or you take pictures of yourself at any time or you're, it's just such a different world so I I don't know if maybe, you know, if maybe it, it'll just become a normal part of their development and they'll just sort of take it in stride, but yeah, to, to me, as someone where it's, it still seems foreign to me, uh, in, a, in a way, because it's just, we didn't have social media, you know, when I was a teenager. If I was just I never even heard that term. I don't yes. even think that was a term back then, so I, I kind of think about yeah, just like the additional pressure it adds when you're still trying to figure out, you know, because it's true, you just, when you looked awful at that age, like it wasn't like a broadcast that, you know, I often miss awful when I sort of went out of the house and the idea that now it's like you're photographed and it's, and it's here and it's here and it's here and it's just out there. I'm like, oh, gosh, but maybe they just sort of take that as that's a given. Yeah,
3: that's different expectations is what you, you know, so if you have different expectations, the results will be different. And as you say, their expectation is different, that they will be photographed. Uh, ours, we weren't. We didn't have that expectation. Um, I, um we sort of, you know getting towards the end of the book or getting we could near the end of the book, and I really don't want to talk about the ending but right. uh <laughs> um and we're talking about secrets and although one of the themes in the book also that Marley and Rachel mother and daughter both keep secrets um mm-hmm. and not just from each other but from themselves, and I think mm-hmm. that's yeah that's an important point that you make in the book mm-hmm. um and the worst thing you can do is to lie to yourself. So this is a theme that kind of evolves also in, in the uh, Don't Try to Find Me. mm mm-hmm.
6: Yeah, and I, I think of it as um, something I kind of see a lot in working with, um, you know, with families, with, with teens, is that, like, I feel like um, as they get older, children start to, they spot their parents' um, inconsistencies and hypocrisies, like, which, and there just are some that just you have to do for normal social, you know, interactions, like, like, for example, your child knows that you don't really like somebody, but that you smile and you kind of make nice anyway, because that's, like, how the world works, you know, and to them it can be like, I'll never be like that, I'll never be fake like my parents, you know, and and there's and I, I feel like there's um that thing about authenticity and, and, and being genuine is really important to um teenagers because they're trying to figure out their identity in the world, you know, and like who they really are. And so um so I feel like that's one of those things that kinda gets in the way of like parent child relationships sometimes is that um like I think some of the parents like don't acknowledge with their kids, yeah, life's complicated and we're not a hundred percent genuine all the time, you know, that that and have honest conversations about kind of all the, all the ways that you kind of thought things would be one way and that they've turned out a different way. Like, I, I think being transparent and genuine with your teenagers gets you a lot of credibility. And, um, and I think sometimes where parents and teenagers, I, I think Marley and Rachel certainly get disconnected, is that I think Rachel has this idea of, of how she should represent herself as a parent. And I think Marley sees through it in, in a lot of ways. And, um, and it makes her not trust Rachel. You know, it makes Rachel not seem like a real person to her. And um, makes her seem seem fake. And so um, it makes Marley not really respect Rachel. And so that's kind of one of the themes in the book is um, how to be true to yourself and then be true um, when you talk to your kids, you know, instead of having to put on like a false sort of parent persona
3: well you've had the experience of being the daughter obviously and you and and an older and a, da- a grown up daughter an adult daughter but now as i said in the beginning you have a toddler daughter so you're just kind of at the beginning stage with the mother you as the mother with the toddler daughter mhm mm-hmm.
6: yeah yeah and i think that um you know so i think some of this like when i'm writing this book there's um an element of be kind of working out, like, what kind of mother I want to be and what kind of mother I don't want to be, you know, as, as she gets older, because I, I certainly have my image in my mind of, you know, what I think you should do, and then I know I haven't gotten there yet, so I so I, I definitely have full respect for how difficult it is to parent a teenager, and and, uh, and I don't have any illusions that I'll, you know, that I'll necessarily be the way I think I'll be, you know, <laughs> like, I have kind of a goal in mind of, of, of what style I want to have, but I don't know what challenges, you know, my daughter is going to sort of throw in. In my, in my path, because already I feel like even though she's only two and a half, I feel like there's ways that she really challenges me and I have to kind of step back and think about the way I'm handling things, and sometimes I don't really like it, and I, I have to revise, and I have to try to do better, and so it's just like a constant, you know, sort of Challenge to me about like the mother I sort of am aiming to be and the mother I actually am day to day, and I know that that's gonna only like intensify when you know when when she's in that stage when the in the teenage stage so um so yeah, when I write the book, i'm kind of imagining like the mistakes I don't want to make, you know <laughs> um and I don't know if that can really be preventive by the time I get there but uh but it's a hope. <laughs>
3: You, we, have to, we only have 30 seconds left, but I do have to say, well, you're thinking about it. I mean, you're right there. You've got another 10 years to go at least, um, mm-hmm. or maybe not at least. You've got another 10 years to go, we'll say. <laughs> and then I, then I want to have you on the show again and see what you have to say. We'll you'll have written several other novels after that probably. But anyway, <laughs> don't try to find me. You can get it, buy it online, bookstores everywhere, Holly Brown. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, it was great talking to you, and it's a great book. We're going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great day, and we'll see you next Wednesday.
2: We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice America Channel.